Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Securities, Security Confidential. Today, we are honored to have Eric Allard back. Uh, he's coming. He's a veteran of this show. He's an entrepreneur. If you guys don't remember, he's a CTO of Sue Software, uh, and he has 15 years plus of experience in leadership, business strategy, and software team transformation. His timing on this show is very appropriate as he's going to talk about S-bombs and we're going to let him get into what all that is. And so this is going to be somewhat of a primer, everyone, on the whole S-bomb topic. Um, so let's, uh, without further ado, Eric, thank you for being here on the show and, and, and you have the floor, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, this is for people that don't know anything about software bill of materials, what an S-bomb is. If you've never heard the term, I will uh, demystify that. And, and why all our audience should care here is if you folks uh, all remember the solar winds attack, the dragonfly, Kaseya, Code Cove, all those have been S-bomb related attacks. Uh, so, you know, it's about the software supply chain. And, and so stay tuned, please go ahead, Eric. Great. I will do that. I'm going to break this down and make it real simple and uh, make sure everyone understands why you care about S-bombs. S-bombs are about vulnerability, transparency, and accountability. But what I want to make sure you understand is I'm not an expert on government regulation. Um, Minaj said I have a background in software engineering. I, I started as a software engineer. I'm an engineering manager. I'm a product manager. And the government has interesting reasons for wanting a software bill of materials, but none of us needs to be experts in regulations to get to the bottom of why that is. And that's what we're going to dive into here. Um, first of all, nobody develops anymore without using open source software. There's many statistics out there about the prevalence of open source software. This, these stats are from GitHub's Octaverse report um, from wow. 2022. And some people see big numbers like 90% and they say, that's fear mongering. You know, some of this software is never called. You don't invoke a vulnerable method or maybe it's not configured in a vulnerable way. And I think you'll understand why, even if that's the case, open source is everywhere and you still want to have a good understanding of what's in the application you're building or perhaps what's in the application you are bringing into your organization from a vendor because you're going to bundle it up and use it in another product or just run it as part of the tool set you use in your organization. Um, I mentioned I gave this talk at a healthcare conference and I wanted to point out that open source is everywhere and it's in healthcare news. Pick any industry. If you're in the financial industry or the automotive industry or um, it, it doesn't matter. Open source is used by all industries. Um, in any possible uh, um, software application you can think of. And, and that also means things like industrial computers, even, you know, machine computers, PLCs. So it doesn't matter if you're in healthcare, tech, finance, open source is a big deal. Now, Eric, um, is um, open source in embedded systems in healthcare? Oh, surely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's in just about any connected device that you can think of through things like TCP IP stacks. It's in, it's, it's really quite comprehensive. So okay. I can, without question, say that it's in every industry, including surely healthcare. Um, but 
all of them. <laughs> all of them. So those heart rate monitors and respirators and insulin pumps and anything you can think of. It's it's all it's all um, powered by software these days. You know, to to miniaturize and make things cost efficient. A lot of that grunt work is done in code, not uh, not with hardware. Okay. Yep. So why is that a problem? Well, it's not per se, but there are things people don't often think about that come along with using open source software. Legal risk is one consideration. I picked out uh, some recent decisions, semi-recent, these were a couple of years ago, but, uh, but I tried to find ones between companies that people have probably heard of. So VMware, MongoDB, Couchbase, um, You'll even see that VMware has been on both sides. They've been a plaintiff and a defendant. So when you don't understand the licensing of the open source software you're bringing into your organization, there is legal risk. And you know you, you might not know that the thing you're using has um, some sort of uh, AGPL license, for example. And, and that may compel you to have to open source your own source code. Uh, there's a lot of restrictions and considerations when you're using open source software. So understanding how it's licensed is important so that you don't get sued. Um, big money and big disruption to your business if you had to rip out some key component of your platform because you weren't really using it in a way that was acceptable to the terms of the license of that software. And I mentioned this one first because I think it's, forgotten about because everyone thinks about the more scary stuff like vulnerabilities. Um, now, last I year, just real quick question. Sorry to interrupt on that one. Yeah, no, um, we all know, everyone kind of clicks past the accept user terms and agreements and, just, <laughs> yeah. and jams through it as part of the, you've been a part of software development life cycles for, for a very long time. Is there a, place at the beginning where someone is should do a legal review or does that ever really happen just curious the, it, i think it's more and more common um it's almost always going to come up nowadays in any sort of due diligence if you're going through an acquisition and part of what we'll talk about sort of later on about what can you do about this the goal is really to automate um the awareness that these things exist. So when you bring a new dependency, a new library into your organization, because you're going to use it for an application, making sure that how it's licensed is acceptable to your business should be part of that process. Um, licensing for software is a tricky, ugly, gnarly, <laughs> gnarly thing. Um, the way someone might specify that license is varied. It could even be buried in some comments in a file, you know, that you may not even be looking in. So there's a lot to consider, but most of the time things are pretty standard. There are agreed upon ways to share that license information. So with tools, you can pick up on that and even set rules to prevent certain license types from bring, be, um, being brought into your application. And I just um, out of curiosity, how much development time would increase if you started lessening the use of open source because of these legal considerations? Um, if you have an I answer, I mean, well, I, here's the thing: I 
I don't, but I have a different answer. I don't think you have to because there are so many options. If you had the visibility and awareness and okay. were being kind of cognizant of that as part of the development process, you could simply choose something that met the needs of your business okay. and, and really avoid that legal risk. You know, there's, there's often alternatives or you may be deciding to go look for a piece of open source code and not find anything with an acceptable license term, but decide, well, it's not a lot of work for me to accomplish this thing. I may, I may write this portion myself instead of relying on uh, a third party or an open source application to do it for me. And there's other reasons to make those considerations beyond just license risk. Um, I actually have an example on this slide. If you're if you're seeing this, 26,000 CVEs reported yeah. in 2022. This is shifting a little bit from legal risk and, and looking at security risk. Um, number three here, I listed Faker.js, Colors.js. These were two JavaScript libraries. Um, if you use JavaScript in your applications, there's a good chance you've heard of these. You may have even been affected by them. The maintainer of um, these libraries, they intentionally corrupted them, you know, to kind of make a, a statement about compensation for open source maintainers. Um, but regardless of their intentions, this would effectively DOS the person's application. And I'm not saying they're not valuable libraries, but they were relatively simple. And they're things that someone probably could have um, implemented themselves pretty easily. So going back to your license question, you may find this colors library and it, it does some, some simple thing and it's going to save you time. You're not going to have to write that code yourself, but if it weren't uh, licensed in a way that you could accept in your business, well, you can find that out at the beginning of the development process and make the decision to not use it and write it yourself, you know, and that's not always going to be an, an option, but it's certainly a possibility if you know, if you have that information, right? Okay. Um, log for shell that was the series of CVEs that uh, were related to log for J. So everyone's probably heard about that at this point. That was a really big deal. I don't want to spoil things, but we'll talk about that again later in this uh, presentation. And Spring for Shell, along the same lines, another Java uh, exploit, like exploitable Java uh, piece of Java code. Um, Equifax, big deal. Everyone's heard of this. I think I still probably have credit monitoring from, from five or six years ago when this first went down. I think, you know, that 1.4 billion down arrow is my way of saying, and that number is, is surely bigger, probably closer to 2 billion. 1.4 billion was the amount that Equifax wrote down as losses that they attribute to the breach. And, um, you know, I've worked on big legacy applications and I, I have some empathy for the people that were probably maintaining this code base. It's a hard job to do, but the struts vulnerability that was ultimately exploited there was a there was a cve published in march of that year march of 2017 uh, it was given a cvss score of 10 that's in the cvss system the most critical uh, but the exploit didn't happen for about two months later so there was some time in there for this to be remediated granted 
there's probably a lot of instances in that big of a code base, but if they had taken this more seriously, and I can't say for sure that they didn't, but if it had been taken more seriously, could they have prevented the, the breach altogether? Um, I think they probably tried, but knowing what we know now, this is the kind of thing that you may have to take some really exceptional steps to protect yourself. And knowing about these vulnerabilities is, is the fundamental step to being able to do something about it, right? You can't, you can't, uh, really manage what you can't monitor. Um, and then finally, I'm going to go back even further in time and then we're going to get into S bomb. So I promise we're getting there, but oh, this is good. Are, some of these are new to me. <laughs> oh, good. Well, this one's incredibly interesting. Um, I had to learn about a case study, <clears throat> uh, talking about this tragedy that happened in the eighties when I was in college and this was a device that was software controlled and it was unfortunately maiming and even killing some people by improperly irradiating them so that the operator would think the machine was in one mode and there was a defect in the software and they had omitted hardware fail safes so the machine could be put into a really dangerous state and they were actually cooking people uh, and and you may ask well what this was you know, open source this was not open source, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to caveat that in the, in the next slide. This wasn't open source, but the reason I bring it up is um, there's a number of similarities, you know, in, in some of these disasters, be it Equifax or something like this that actually caused loss of life. Um, and that is there's a certain amount of hubris, misjudging of risks, uh, a lack of required process controls. All of these things need to be considered to prevent a tragedy. And you can imagine, as you asked at the beginning, well, are, is open source or being used in devices like this today? Yes. So I want, I kind of want to draw everyone's attention to the fact that no, in 1985, it wasn't using open source software, but surely today's version of this machine is okay. And, and we'll hit on that again a little bit later when we talk more about why you why you need to be thinking about software bill of materials if you work anywhere that that kind of has a software as a key part of the of the business so what's the solution you can probably guess um, <laughs> we're talking about an s-bomb primer and, and the title of my talk had s-bomb in it s-bomb is a big part of the solution and by itself a software bill of materials is just a text document okay it could be JSON, it could be XML, but I have a little snippet here on the screen. It, it's very straightforward. It is even human readable, but it's also machine readable. The idea is this is something that could be uh, ingested with another sop software application and, and you could learn some things from analyzing an SBOM. So the vulnerabilities may be directly in the software bill of materials, they may be provided separately in another format, something like VEX. We, we won't get into the weeds there, but at a high level, just think of it as um, an ingredients list, okay? Or, or like just what it sounds like, a bill of materials. If you were to get a shipping container from overseas, there would be a piece of paper in the old days. And nowadays, I'm sure it's electronic bill of materials, but there'd be a piece of paper and it would say, you know, there's... 24 cases of air conditioners in this shipping container. And, and this is the equivalent for software. Uh, 
So let's, let's put software bill of materials into terms that I think will help you remember what it really is forever. It's kind of a mnemonic device. And I like to use this to get people on board with what we're talking about. So let's pretend you, uh, we're going to make a drink. Uh, you were going to entertain some friends and, or you just watched Tom Cruise and cocktail and you're spinning bottles and, you, and you're going to make a, a really fancy looking drink. Um, you have a great recipe, you know, you, you see, we have, there's some bitters in there. It has to have that cherry to make it a main. Oh, is this your recipe, by the way? I, I don't, I don't even remember where I got this. Okay. I think I, I think I found it on Wikipedia to be honest or okay. somewhere. But let's pretend it is my recipe and it's really unique and I've learned the art and there's just something really special. So what am I going to do with that great idea? Well, obviously I'm going to sell out and I'm going to call up Anheuser-Busch in Bev and I'm going to tell them about the Canhattan. And I said, you know, these canned alcoholic drinks are all the rage. Um, what am I going to need to know before they even consider selling this? In, in distributing it, well, surely they're going to need to know the, the ingredients list. Um, and, and I might think, well, that's not a problem. We, st we started with that right here. Here's the ingredients list. There's some whiskey and vermouth and bitters and the cherry. But if you take a step back, you need to think, hold on a minute. Do I really know all the ingredients? And the punchline is you don't. <laughs> I actually went and found a 40-page college study you know they used it they had um, they had this as sort of a case study probably for chemistry students or something and they published the um here's the most common ingredients for a sample of maraschino cherries and cherries isn't surprising but some of those other things you probably didn't expect to see right sodium benzoate potassium sorbate um, sulfur dioxide are, yeah but but these things are in there Okay, so if I went to if I went to AB InBev and said, no, there's only one, two, three, four ingredients, that's not quite true. That's not at all true. In fact, these sub ingredients really do matter. And there's you need a way to not only you need to make sure you know that, of course, but you also need a way to disclose that. And I propose you need an F-bomb and well, that's <laughs> okay, wonderful. You know, an F-bomb. You need a food bill of materials. Now, in the real world, we, we call this the nutrition facts label, right? Everyone's seen this on any packaged good that you buy at the grocery store. There's a nutrition facts label, uh, even on those canned spirits, or at least on the case, but surely on the can too. There's a printed nutrition facts label, and it's going to tell you all the ingredients, and that includes the sub-ingredients. You know, if you go look at a nutrition label, you're going to see some parenthetical entries. And those are all sub ingredients for some, um, some bigger component in, in that, in that food. So you need a full and accurate disclosure of what's in your product, including things, you know, to be dangerous. Uh, you have to tell someone if there's nuts in, in that product, or even if it was processed in a facility that included nuts, right? You could make someone sick or even potentially kill someone. And then there's other common disclosures on a nutrition label, right? The country of origin, where did this thing come from? And are there any other terms like you can't resell this? It was it sold at Costco and it's meant 
um, not for retail sale, it's a wholesale thing. Maybe Costco is a bad example, but imagine a wholesalers um, where they would get their products for distribution. So let's just tweak a few things on the slide and notice I've highlighted that um, in the lower left corner here, you need a full and accurate disclosure of what's in your product, including things you know to be dangerous. I didn't change that at all between the food bill of materials and the software bill of materials. The ingredient list, it's all of the software dependencies in your product, including transitive dependencies. Those are the sub-ingredients in the software world. So I may go out in GitHub and, and find some application that I want to use, and I depend on that. You know, in, uh, Maybe it's um, an image resizing program. Well, I may depend on that image resizing application. Meanwhile, that application itself has dependencies. And those dependencies have more dependencies. So there's a giant tree that sort of branches out from that one thing that you depended on. And we need to be aware, just like with the food example, of anything that could be potentially dangerous. So instead of a nut allergy or shellfish that we're concerned with, we're concerned with software vulnerabilities. So we need to say that this dependency has some known uh, vulnerabilities associated with it. And similarly to the country of origin or the not for resale language, there's probably, there almost certainly is going to be some licensing information that accompanies it. So that's the equivalent of those disclosures in an S-bomb. Now, can I um, ask a quick question here? Aaron? Oh, yeah, yeah. Stop is me there, whenever. Um, is this not a problem that would really benefit from blockchain? Um, I, I have had discussions with people that are, that have talked about sharing S bombs and using uh, distributed ledger as a, as a mechanism of storing that and yeah. potentially using it as a way to federate access. Um, I think fundamentally though, this is all stuff that works really well with classic databases. It's basic relationships. Um, so there's, there's perhaps some novel applications where blockchain or distributed ledger types of technologies do get used here in the future, particularly for things like, imagine there is like a global registry of software and anyone could independently verify here's the S bomb for this particular version. Um, but, and we can, this could be a great, uh, post-presentation discussion, the industry is still pretty skeptical. There's a lot to be figured out about how to trade and share these things and and how openly that would occur. As you can imagine, there are some pretty big companies that are using SBOMs already and they're starting to trade these and they're hesitant about um, how this might be protected. So um, there could be opportunities there, but I think Okay. That might be a a little further down the road if it if it ever ends up making sense. Yeah. Okay. So let's say we had that software bill of materials, right? And now we're kind of all in the same place. If you're thinking of it of that as, as that ingredients list, or even better, the nutrition facts label, it has certain fundamental information. How does it help you? Well, I, I led in the beginning, and I said. I mentioned regulations shaping the way 
SBOMs would be used for accountability and transparency. There have been some uh, legislative or executive actions like the executive order a couple of years ago. There's been some more recent things. Uh, it's not listed on this slide, but oh, actually, if you look very at the very bottom, <laughs> section 3305, this is the ensuring the cybersecurity of medical devices, um, which is this, what this headline is referring to. So new medical devices looking to get FDA approval are going to have to generate a software bill of materials to get through that approval process. So there are industries that are starting to expect software bills of materials. Um, you know, being in the cybersecurity space and making tools that help with SBOM, I hear from our clients that this is something that is being expected and asked for more frequently. But, you know, because the government says so or wants you to isn't a great reason. So I'm leading with that. <laughs> but I think there's other benefits that we really should talk talk about, not just not just the because you'll probably have to do it for legal reasons someday. Uh, I think there's better reasons. Um, SBOMs help your business. If you're building an SBOM, um, you're able to share that information with your vendor. And to have the information required to build an SBOM means you've learned a lot about the software that you're using. It allows you to manage, and uh, manage those dependencies and fix issues. If you know there are dependencies in your application with known vulnerabilities, there's a certain awareness and ability to plan that fix, get that into your development process. And then you're going to be able to also continuously monitor um, your software and be alerted when there's new vulnerabilities. So you may have a certain, um, what's the footprint of open source software in your application. And there may not be any known vulnerabilities and that software may be static. You're not actively developing it. That doesn't mean tomorrow there won't be a new vulnerability discovered that you may need to do something about. So um, I kind of have a whole nother talk track I can go into about SBOM and the discipline that helps you create an SBOM. One of those is software composition analysis and how that works within a development environment. But at a high level, just kind of take it, uh, take it my word that the process of creating an SBOM enables a lot of organizational benefits, particularly with um, risk and risk mitigation and compliance and development um, development work. If, if you want an interesting example of how dependencies in your application can get out of control really quickly, if you look at the, I went and looked at the simple spring starter web project. So this is meant to, for you to use as a jumping off point to build an application, okay? Before you've even added a single line of your own code, the simple spring starter web project has already pulled in 63 dependencies. Okay. So they're not all on my screen, but just imagine that tree and how big that might be. Yeah. And you haven't even put any of your own code, but all of these are potential vectors for um, license risk, vulnerability risk. Um, so just think about that. The next time you go find something, you, there's a lot there that you don't see below the surface. The web test, this, uh, this archive spring boot starter at the very top brings in and then relies on many, many, many other pieces of software. Um, think about zero days. Okay. We talked about log for shell in the beginning. Um, 
Alyssa Miller gave a great talk about understanding SBOM. It's probably a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago at uh, the Circle City Con. And she said, hey, when log for shell came up, we had an idea within hours, the complete inventory of all those places where we were using Log4j. It, without uh, a tool in place, that's um, an incredibly big manual effort. I remember meeting someone, I don't remember if it was RSA or that Vive healthcare conference, but I said, hey, what was your experience when Log4j um, was first known to have some pretty big exploitability issues? And they said, well, we didn't have a tool and it took us weeks to find all the usage uh, usages of Log4j. And that wasn't just me, that was like a team of four people. So um, this could be a very big gnarly task. And, and you could have to look for another one tomorrow, a different one. So it's not a manual, this is not a manual uh, undertaking as you saw from this tree. And this is the, only the most basic example. You need uh, tools that are gonna help you solve these problems. And SBOM is a great way to do that. Um, when I gave this talk, we had just published a public database for software bills and material. Uh, at this point, we're, we've actually published about 60 million, almost 61 million SBOMs. Any open source package um, that's been put out on the package managers, you can go to SUS.io. We have some, some ways to lead you into our public SBOM database. And you can download a software bill of material for something you might be using for free. Uh, but I think the important part is to think about how an SBOM can help your business and to think about how you might implement tools that help you generate these in real time. Uh, on every commit, you look at the dependencies in an application and see if there's known vulnerabilities. And then when your client comes calling for the next Log4j and they say, oh, geez, I'm using your product. Does it, does it rely on Log4j? You'll have an answer. Hopefully it's no. Um, but there's a good chance it's yes. And you'll be able to understand quickly how much does that affect your product. You can be proactive instead of reactive. You can actually reach out to your clients and say, we know the zero day happened. We know we use it. Um, unfortunately, we are vulnerable or we're not vulnerable because of the way we're configured or we are vulnerable. But if you put this firewall rule in place, you can mitigate some of this. It gives you a chance to not be surprised not be manually trying to dig this up on your own. Um, and, and everyone likes to say shift left. Well, you can be doing this on every build and knowing early in the process a lot more about the vulnerability risk, license risk uh, of, of the software that you're building. So that's the, that's the primer. And now I think, Minaj, I think you probably may have some other paths we go down, but um, hopefully that gives a basic understanding of what well, that, software bill of materials is. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. Uh, but, but it raises a lot of questions and I don't think there's any really solid answers that we have right now. I mean, thank you, first of all, for giving us that little bit of a presentation. So uh, we understand a lot more about this topic. But in listening to you, one of the things that caught me, you know, this whole the embedded system, especially when it's in hardware, mm -hmm. that's a real problem because if if you if we find a vulnerability like a log4j type thing in a uh, CT scanner or in uh, 
you know, th there's so many life critical things like the c control system of a locomotive or mm -hmm. what have you. It's a non-trivial exercise to update all those things, right? And then the question is, if we update it, are we introducing new vulnerabilities that we're not aware of? And then, no. you know, another item that comes to mind in the same at the same time is because we're using open source and by definition, open source is open. So just like you had pointed out where someone had put in in uh, uh, faker.js or mm -hmm. had intentionally created vulnerabilities. Who's to say that those don't already exist or someone doesn't maliciously add vulnerabilities to a new version of open source? And now yeah. we <laughs> we updated our embedded system with uh, that patched one thing, but we created a whole nother source of problems here, right? Yeah, you hit on a few really good topics that come up a lot. One, so you mentioned the embedded devices and I talked about Therac 25, that the, the device that tragically hurts and killed yeah, people in the 80s. machine, yeah. Yeah, so surely the FDA does, hasn't forgotten that, right? And they're one of the first kind of trying to compel people to have a better understanding of what is in this software as part of the approval process. Now, that's only for new devices. So as you mentioned, there is an enormous base of deployed devices out there that are going to continue to be out there for a long time. And this doesn't fix that. And that's very difficult to go create a software bill of materials for many of those things. The source, who knows, some of this stuff, it may even be difficult to get a hold of and determine what that is now. Right. So that's a real, that is a real problem that um, nobody knows the answer to yet. I have, I like to talk about it though, in more of a software engineering practice and understanding of life the lifetime of software. So if you were an IT person and you, you know, maybe a few years ago when we weren't doing everything in the cloud, you had racks and racks of physical servers. Um, there's only a certain useful lifetime of that hardware, right? Correct. Three to five years. And you, and you have a whole program to life cycle that and, and, and move it, move it out of commission, commission, uh, decommission it. But Eric, there's a ton of things that don't, that are mission critical. You look at all the mainframes, the number of AS400s that are still out there. No, I mean, I think yeah. IBM just released a new version of ZOS like a couple of weeks ago. I saw something like... And you look at, um, you know, all our the, the missile systems and whatnot on an F-18 Hornet are still yeah. uh, programmed off... Uh, what we we remember as uh, Unix, you know, the VAX uh, yeah. Yeah. BMS operating system running in emulation mode. So I, I not to challenge you on that, but there there seems to be a, still a lot of plethora of things out there that are mission critical oh. that are. No, no, I, no dispute, no argument for me. I, and I'm not even that is a giant part of the challenge. I think what I'm saying is there needs to be also a rethinking about software in general and how do you life cycle software just because it can run indefinitely you know it doesn't mean that um it should <laughs> I, I think there needs to be more thought put into the upgrade path and the maintainability of software not just when after its first release but for its entire intended 
lifetime because um, you're right. How do you change? How do you do an upgrade to a, a piece of software in an, in an embedded device um, that has, has to go through any number of validations, government approvals? You know, a medical device can't just be updated without going through a whole process again. So there's so much in the software lifecycle that has to be, I think, modernized. And that's going to be a big part of solving any of these problems, not to not at all touching the deployed base of things that are already 30 years old. You know, one thing that comes to mind, and, and this is totally in, from a tangential industry, and I've been removed from it for over two decades, uh, more than that, actually. But like when you look at the aviation industry and you look at engine control software, it used to be, and I don't know if it's still true today, but for the longest time on an aircraft, they used to deliver the engine control system software updates on floppy disks. I don't know if mm -hmm. people still remember what those were. And even when USB drives were ubiquitous and you could do it, but the whole, and, and they could have enabled downloading from uh, the web, but they, the FAA, I'm assuming the FAA probably wanted a chain of custody that said, okay, where did this, did this originate from the OEM? Mm -hmm. Is it certified from the OEM? Mm -hmm. And it's clear of all known nonsense. And only then could you actually upgrade the engine mm -hmm. control software on a aircraft that we all fly on. Is there a lesson to be taken from that and applying maybe it's a it's a it's a sneaker net approach, but for applications and embedded systems where we say, look, we need to update this, but we're going to really air gap them and we're not going to allow any kind of connectivity. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that generates a whole nother plethora of <laughs> of issues. But for mission critical things, is there any real way around it? I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, these are these are questions that people are grappling with. And again, we talked about all industry. Think about in, uh, energy as well. Oh yeah, so, you know, there's huge advantages to having the control systems be connected because you can do lots of adaptive load. You know, I'm not an expert in that industry, but you can imagine like shifting load to different segments of your power grid. All of that is um, requires a certain amount of interconnectedness, but at the same time, that introduces a substantial new element of risk. Um, so, if it is completely disconnected and air, you know, on its own isolated network, that makes a lot of challenges for what sorts of capabilities it can have, and it's a big trade-off. It's, it's, there's, well, yeah, well, I don't have any good answers for well, that. Well, yeah, it, it is, but maybe we need to, uh, and, and I think it would take government regulation to do this because no private industry is going to do it on their own, limit the capability of products. That is, mm. they just won't. That's, uh, totally, uh, against profit behavior, but <laughs> you know, uh, if you look at, uh, an aircraft, it only has one mission, fly you from point A to B safely. And uh, anything that interferes with that mission is not allowed, regardless of the capability involved. Same thing if you're, uh, I, you know, if someone's unfortunately going for radiation treatment, they should, 
they already have enough troubles in their life from whatever unfortunate diseases got them. The last thing they should worry about is, is my treatment going to kill me? You know, yeah. right? So those are, I, I don't have the answers, but I, I think it's a tough one. Like they're, they're, it's at least should be in the, in the conversation stack. The other thing is, what's your opinion of actually, you know, there was a time when we didn't use embed, uh, open source software. Is there, is there a play to uh, get, uh, you know, source code for a lot of things, run it through the ringer and then make it your own and, and abandon the open source from where it originates. Again, that probably has a, a, some lawyers probably saying, uh-uh, that doesn't work. But <laughs> um, I mean, you certainly, a lot of licenses do allow you to do it and you could fork a project. I think it's not impossible. And I mean, a lot of things move in a cyclical nature, right? I mean, the cloud is kind of the main, the new mainframe, right? It, it is. I'm sharing a computer. So you could fork a big project and decide like, we're going to keep it and maintain our own fork from henceforth. But everything you started with at that point in time, at least was known. So somebody already knows a lot about that application and the amount of knowledge, the amount of uh, engineering prowess to then take that on and be an expert in that is probably quite substantial. So maybe you have a team that's already well-versed in maintaining and understanding that open source that you brought into your organization, but for something big, like, you know, you're using uh, some Linux variation, like there's a reason Red Hat exists and you pay them to support it, right? Because right. it's incredibly big and complicated. So um, there's possible, I'm sure people do that. I'm, I'm, but at how feasible is that for most situations? Probably a tough sell. And is there any going back? Like, yeah, you know, that's, is there any going back? Is the cat out of the bag at this point? Right. I, I mean, we've traded all these things for convenience, safety, security. I, or, so maybe, you know, one of the things you can do with risk is accept it. So uh, perhaps that's also in the cards that there's a certain level of acceptance that. Mm -hmm. Well, we are doing it now just without an understanding of what you're accepting because people don't typically know what is in the software. So SBOM is part of changing that aspect you can at least know more about the thing you're accepting risk with, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so at, at SUS, Eric, how are you guys, there's, there's so many open source platforms, mm -hmm. applications, things out there. How do you build your, like, how are you guys staying on top of it? What's your intelligence mechanism to make it um, happen, if you will? What's our intelligence mechanism? Well, we pull, so there's a couple different aspects you look at to kind of tie a vulnerability to a piece of software. And you use a lot of open source information to do that. You look at package managers, you look at published information on sources like GitHub, you look at the NVD, you look at CISA's, uh, I'm trying to remember the name, KVE. Um, there's an exploitability database with an EPSS score, there's all these um, pieces of data that are publicly available that we try to overlay 
to help you make a decision. Okay. Um, and then there's lots of companies whose and possibly um, pop, um, open source organizations whose mission it is to uncover those things and figure out what's risky and exploitable. Uh, and they provide a, a extensive services in uh, trying to be the discoverer of a lot of these vulnerabilities in the first place. But what we do effectively is we look at that top level of your software. We understand something about the dependencies in your application. And then we give you information to try to map that to what is known about the vulnerability landscape. And, and there's, of course, lots of known unknowns. There's new vulnerabilities every day. I showed sure. the slide about 20,000 CVEs last year. So, and that's only a tiny fraction of um, probably the vulnerabilities out there. Those are just the ones that have been discovered and shared publicly in, in NIST's NVD. So. Now, uh, in the fledgling era of chat GPT, is this mm -hmm. not a problem that's really well suited for natural language processing? I think it is. I think there's some um, technologies in particular that it, we don't dabble in. And part of the reason is because I think uh, AI driven solutions are going to be very good at, at doing a lot of this, something like a SAST, which is a static application analysis. So it's actually looking at the lines of code in your application and looking at the source. So you can imagine um, AI is, there's probably going to be some very good AI based solutions that can help say, hmm, this, this is probably risky the way you're doing this based on this giant library of source code that we're, we've ingested <laughs> legally or not. But I mean, I mean, GitHub has your code, right? GitLab has your code. There's, there's some pretty big organizations that could be run, building those models. Sure. I, you know, I guess it's a bigger problem now, but back in the day, it was still a problem. I mean, if for those of us that were writing code in C, you were always including those libraries, you know, include mat.h or mm -hmm. this.h, whatever it might be. Um, we never knew what was in there. We just assumed that the compiler manufacturer had actually done their job with the damn thing, you know? Yeah. Right. True. You didn't, and, it, and it, you were just programming to some interface and that's right. So that's <laughs> you exactly saw that right. The header file and you, um, yeah. And there was a bunch of standard libraries, but you also were probably buying some of those capabilities from a trusted vendor and, it was assumed not only were they responsible for doing a good job, it wasn't publicly, there was some security by obscurity in that case, right? Not everybody knew what was in that built, but made that binary tick. True. Um, yeah, very true. Uh, I, I guess I keep coming back to this notion of, you know, if we take some kind of technology that you're offering, and we do reasonable due diligence on it. And I guess that's mm -hmm. the word I would want to use. Then does that absolve us of the responsibility of the outcome of what that technology is doing? Because mm -hmm. how, how can we, like there's a proposition by the federal government 
of holding software development firms accountable for all security vulnerabilities in their software. Mm -hmm. On the surface, that sounds real nice, but the reality of it is that nobody could do it. Even the Microsofts and Oracles of the world use tremendous amount of open source software in there. Mm -hmm. Adobe uses a ton of open source in their offerings, right? How could they guarantee it? And how could you hold them accountable, really? Any thoughts on that, Eric? Um, you may not. I mean, you, you probably can't reasonably guarantee anything that big, right? But I do think there is a certain element and a certain duty to disclose what it is you're using. You know, just like when we talked about the food example. Because today, um, you're choosing to use Adobe, but you don't know any of, you're, you know, you said yourself, they're surely using lots of things, but you don't even have the opportunity, either you personally or with some other highly proficient and educated tool or person to make an assessment and say, geez, I don't really want to be using it because it's built upon this thing. And I think there is going to, it is probably going to take not only a change in expectations between vendors and their clients, but also uh, regulatory changes before people willingly spit those out at scale. I think we're starting to see it um, little by little, but I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think you could realistically guarantee that, but I think you could provide an assessment of what it is inside your software to demonstrate that you've done some of that due diligence and someone else can make their own decision about. Exactly. And I think there's a point of reasonableness, right? These digital outcomes that the public wants will hold them accountable. You know, it's, it's uh, <clears throat> on the surface seems like a great idea, but you're creating an environment where people may not voluntarily disclose or, or they're going to say, you know what, we're not going to scan it. This has been out there for ages and you know, we, we don't know what's all in there. And, and, and if we go and scan this thing for vulnerability and it spits back a hundred of them, we can't afford to fix it and our customers can't afford to pay for it. Yeah, but you may find that you scan it and you can't afford to fix them until you figure out, you know, that it could be some life. Like maybe there's no known vulnerability at that moment. But you could find out tomorrow there is, and that could be a, a, a serious life safety issue. You know, you now know, and you, that's your duty to make it the right decision at that point. And if yeah. you don't, and people really are harmed, then surely you'll be responsible, right? Well, there's no way you're not going to get sued into oblivion. <laughs> you have coverage for that. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> so sure. I'll give you an example. I had a, a and I'll, I'll keep a, a, you know a, an attorney from a very well known law firm once tell me this because we were talking about doing, uh, you know, vulnerability scanning in their environment. Okay, and they really were not too fond of the idea because mm -hmm. it is if vulnerabilities are discovered and they're put on paper and documented. And then yeah. eventually that results in a breach and the loss of data. They are completely liable. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Whereas if they don't know about it and they're exercising reasonableness in their cybersecurity program and uh, data gets out there, they have some plausible deniability. I, I hate to say that, but in layman's terms, that's kind of what I got out of that discourse that, and they don't yeah. want to lose that. Oh, I've been told that indirectly many times. That's a, absolutely, I've heard that before. I, but at some point I feel like that's doesn't hold up, you know, like it, you, you probably have your, you know, I have, you have an old house and you may know there's asbestos in those walls, but yeah. you say, well, I'm just not going to test it. I'm going to do some work. First of all, I can't do any work. I can't tear any walls down or do any work because it would need to be tested and then it would need to be remediated. And, and that would, you're, you're going to get, it's going to catch up with you someday. I think I, I understand people taking that approach and I've heard it, but it's, I don't know that that's really going to hold up for, for long, for much longer. <laughs> well, well, Eric, we're, we're here almost at the hour. Uh, do you have anything new uh, coming out in terms of other talks you're doing? Uh, any other writings you're doing out there? Uh, keeping us all uh, honest in the world of S-bombs? Um, I might, I mean, I, you know, I'm not an S-bomb expert. I keep up with it. I try to attend. There's a number of interesting working groups. If it's something that your audience decides they want to learn more about that CISA, um, puts on, there's all kinds of, uh, interesting activity out there by people that have kind of made this their life mission. There's some interesting blog posters that talk about S-bomb. I'd be happy to share those resources. Me personally, um, I'm not sure what my next talks will be about yet. So I, I have some ideas, but I'm not going to say what they are yet. <laughs> but I will let you know. When, Please when do. Ready. Yep. Please well, thank do. you for having me. I, I appreciate being back on the show. It's always fun. Uh, well, we, uh, you know, we're an educational platform and uh, you certainly help us fulfill that mission. So we're really grateful. I'm grateful to be here. Thank you for always being so welcoming. And uh, I enjoy I enjoy a lot of the people and topics you have. So I appreciate it too. Thank you, Eric. <laughs>